Hello and uh, welcome to this Latrobe Asia event, Deepening Australia-Japan Relations in a Contested Region. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of Latrobe Asia uh, at Latrobe University in Melbourne. And I'm delighted to welcome you uh, to our first face-to-face -face event in over two years. Uh, I would also like to welcome our guests who are joining us online as this is a hybrid event. Uh, and I would like to begin by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. And I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to uh, any Indigenous Australians who are joining us today. Now, part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. Today, we're going to be considering how Australia and Japan might deepen their relationship in a time of strategic contestation. How might they be better able to use diplomatic trade and security policy tools to deal with new challenges? And how might cultural and people-to-people -people links be further developed? So I'm really delighted to invite um, to introduce our panel today. We have Senior Associate Professor Stephen Nagy from the Department of Politics and International Studies at the International Christian University, Tokyo, Japan, who has just flown into Melbourne only recently from Japan. It's great to have you here, Stephen. We also have Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University and Professor of International Relations. Always good to have you here, Nick. <laughs> and we have... Professor Kari Okano, who is a professor of Japanese studies at La Trobe University and an excellent friend of La Trobe Asia. Thank you for coming today, Kari. I'm especially delighted to welcome Consul General Shimada Junji uh, from the Japanese consulate here in Japan, uh, in, in Melbourne, sorry, uh, to provide some welcome remarks uh, to kick off our conversation. Thank you, Consul General. Professor Nick Bisley and Professor Stephen Nagy and Professor Kaori Okano and Professor Rebecca Slating. And good afternoon, Konnichiwa. Um, my name is Shimada Junji. I'm Counselor of Japan, Counselor General of Japan in Melbourne. Thank you, everyone, for gathering here today as well as participating online. The thank you to Latro Asia for hosting today's event and inviting me to deliver the opening remarks. Today's panel discussion is about deepening Australia-Japan relations in a contested region. Last month, I privately went to the uh, Sydney to watch the Australian-Japan soccer game. And I know today's topic is much more serious, but the atmosphere in the stadium also felt like a contested region. But uh, don't worry, no fighting, very peaceful. It was a good game and Japan was lucky to win. But uh, we hope Australia will join us later in the World Cup. It goes without saying that Japan-Australian relationship has become one of the world's strongest and closest partnership. Australia is Japan's best friend and most reliable partner in Asia. This long-standing relationship has been strengthened by our mutual trust on any so many levels. It is also getting more important than ever to maintain our region's stability and security and prosperity. In this rapidly changing world, especially in the wake of Russia's military invasion of Ukraine, our region is not only unfairly contested, but also extending from the Asia Pacific into the Indo-Pacific. As for the Indo-Pacific, the fourth Japan, Australia, US, India, Quad Foreign Ministers meeting was held in here in Melbourne and in February. 
to demonstrate the unities of four countries. And the foreign ministers meeting was followed by the Quad leaders video conference hosted by the United States last month to primarily discuss the uh, increasingly tense situation in Ukraine. The four leaders confirmed to work closely to continue to assist Ukraine and unilateral changes to the status quo with force should not be allowed in the Indo-Pacific region. The four countries share basic values such as freedom, democracy, respect for human rights, rule of law, and share security concerns over a free and open Indo-Pacific. The four leaders will be meeting face-to-face again in Tokyo soon and to advance security and encounter threats to both in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. I would like to express my sincere gratitude to Professor Nagi and for sharing with us his expertise in today's panel discussion topic. And the Natural University's academic team for their support. I believe everyone here is looking forward to hearing the panel's insight on our current regional situation, including regional security and our best course of collaborative action to ensure our regional stability, security, and prosperity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Consul General Shimada. Okay, Stephen, you're our guest today, so I'm going to <laughs> direct the first question to you, and that is about Japan's concept of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, this is obviously a term that is uh, being used quite a lot, particularly uh, in foreign policy and security discussions. Um, so I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of Japan's use of the term, or does it have a coherent strategy uh, in addressing the serious regional security and economic challenges? So thank you very much, Beck, and thank you very much, Consulate General uh, Shimada, for hosting this event and our co-speakers. So I think when we're looking at Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific vision, um, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. But I think primary through the lens of security may be not the most um, constructive way to be thinking about how Japan is thinking about within the region. Thinking about the region, and let me just illustrate. Last year, uh, the uh, Bilateral exports between China and Japan was about 210 billion US dollars. And this is despite record unfavorable ratings uh, of Japan or of China in Japan. And I think this really represents the paradox that exists uh, as Japan thinks about security within the region and the direction of a sustainable uh, presence based on sustainable economic growth within the region. And it requires China. Uh, and we see year by year uh, more and more investment in China by small and medium-sized enterprises and even large corporations. So I think it's very clear, it's important for us to understand that um, Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific vision is not a zero-sum approach to thinking about China. With that, um, how Japan is thinking about the region in general is what we call a, a multilateral, uh, multi-layer form of cooperation within the region that includes trade. And this is illustrated by the comprehensive, progressive and trans-Pacific partnership, the regional comprehensive economic partnership, both important trade agreements that do include, uh, uh, one includes China and one doesn't. Uh, both agreements include uh, one of Japan's closest partners within the region, Australia. Uh, and again, I think this represents uh, an engagement strategy uh, with probably the biggest challenge within the region, that's a rising China. Um, but the free and open Indo-Pacific vision is not just about economic engagement. There's also infrastructure connectivity engagement within the region to support development. Uh, there's also uh, strong initiatives such as the Resilient Supply Chain Initiative, which is focusing on diversifying selectively uh, supply chains um, throughout the region. And this is very much uh, related to Japan's increasing focus on economic security. 
So some of you may or may not understand that uh, about $5 trillion of trade go through the South China Sea and the East China Sea in terms of imports and exports. Uh, the uh, energy resources that fuel the Japanese economy also go through these sea lines of communication. So from Japan's point of view, um, it's really critical to build um, resilience into their economy. And that includes what we call um, building resilient supply chains. So that's building supply chains through the Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, and building alternative production networks uh, close to emerging uh, middle-class uh, regions. And that's here we're thinking about Southeast Asia and South Asia, but that does not mean decoupling from China. Uh, and I think this is an important distinction, uh, engaging with the Chinese economy, uh, trying to embed the Chinese economy and the Chinese uh, institutions in regional uh, multilateral cooperative networks like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, while at the same time building some diversity to build resilience into Japan's economy and into its trading relations. Of course, there is a security side to the uh, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific, and that focuses on um, maritime security primarily, but also uh, thinking about how the region's institutions are going to emerge and develop in the future. Uh, the Indo-Pacific region really has a paucity of institutions. And what I mean by that is rules-based, transparent, uh, legal approaches to managing trade to managing the digital economy, to managing even uh, transnational uh, diseases such as COVID-19. By investing in institutions and rules-based institution building within the Indo-Pacific, Japan hopes to use its free and open Indo-Pacific vision to uh, build stability in the region, as the, uh, uh, the Consul General mentioned, but also to build more predictable, predictability and rules-based approaches to how we solve problems within the region. And those problems are not just um, security challenges. There's non-traditional non, non security challenges like transnational diseases, climate change, uh, rising sea levels. Um, we have worries about more black swan events, the next COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but how do we deal with refugee crises and others? And here we see Japan try to invest in other institutions like the quadrilateral security dialogue, which aim to provide more public goods and some uh, problem solving mechanisms to deal with regional problems. So in short, I think it's a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, vision of Japan can be understood through engagement, as I meant through, as I articulated through trade, through resilience and building uh, a diverse uh, supply chain uh, network within the region. And lastly, deterrence, working within the US-Japan Alliance partnership, building stronger partnerships such as the Australian-Japan Reciprocal Access Agreement and other reciprocal access agreements that are coming online, as well as investing in strategic partnerships that are meant to build short shared values, shared norms, and again, contribute to institutions that will build more stability and peace in the region. Thank you. I'm glad that you mentioned deterrence because I want to ask you about this. Uh, the US Indo-Pacific Strategy uh, document was recently released and it talks not a huge amount, but it does talk about integrated deterrence, uh, which I think is sort of shorthand for getting allies to work collectively uh, to respond to security challenges uh, primarily posed uh, in the region by a rising China. Uh, but the Indo-Pacific, of course, was not originally driven by the United States, but um, by states like Japan and Australia. So I'm wondering whether you can tell us, is Japan's approach to the free and open Indo-Pacific, as it calls it, similar or different um, from regional allies and partners? So this is a great question. And I think that... Um the previous administration in Washington had a very different approach to how it engaged in diplomacy within the region. Uh, it was, uh, what would be the diplomatic way to express this? Um, it was less nuanced um, and it had a very harder, a harder and more explicit way of criticizing um, China and the Communist Party of China. But I think this approach was, although welcomed in capitals within the region, um, they also understood that it was not nuanced enough to deal with the realities of um, all the neighbors of China. And I go back to this, um, South Korea, Australia, Japan, um, Southeast Asian countries, biggest trading partners 
is China. And this will continue to be the case in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. They simply can't have a zero sum approach to that relationship. So as Japan thinks about its own uh, free, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific vision, and this is similar to our European friends, whether it's Germany, France, Denmark, uh, Australia, uh, India, ASEAN, and I uh, hope Canada will come out with their own uh, policy in the coming months. Um, they don't want to have a zero-sum approach to how they engage in the Indo-Pacific. They continue to see lines of convergence in terms of the trade benefits with China, but they also have uh, concerns about how to deter some, deter some of the uh, less desirable behavior uh, that has emerged out of China, whether that's building artificial islands and militarizing them in the South China Sea, gray zone operations in and around the Senkaku Islands, or destabilizing the current status quo, status quo across the Taiwan Straits. While these security challenges remain extremely important, I do think that there's also uh, concern about um, digital economy, the direction of trade, and what will be the role of the state in um, the digital economy? And here, I think when we're thinking about deterrence, we're not just thinking about military to military deterrence, we're thinking about how we can maintain our political systems to be free and open, uh, to be uh, protect the privacy of our citizens uh, in a way that will maximize the prosperity that comes from these new uh, digital economies, but at the same time, uh, potentially defer, uh, deters uh, China or other states from uh, using these kinds of uh, digital economies to reshape the region's um, economic integration. So there's a lot there to think about, and I'm sure that uh, Nick will have a few comments on all of these. Indeed, uh, but I was hoping to bring in Ukraine into the conversation. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, Nick, how is Ukraine and the situation affecting uh, the Asian economic order uh, and how might Japan and Australia view their interests in the context of what's going on in the Ukraine and what can they reasonably do to respond? Thanks, Beck, and um, thanks, everyone, for taking the time um, to be here, literally or, or online. Um, well, the, the Ukraine situation is, you know, I mean, to say it's rippling out in the region is a wild understatement. Um, yeah, there's, there's almost no part, I think, of the security or economic order that isn't affected pretty significantly by uh, what's going on in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think probably, I mean, there's the obvious stuff around uh, energy prices, food prices and things. And again, depending on which part of Asia you're in, that can be more or less acute in terms of the political consequences of that. Um, you know, if you're Indonesia and you subsidise the price of petrol, that's a, you know, there's some costs there you're going to have to manage and political reductions that are going to come from all of that. Um, but I think that the area where we've seen from a security point of view, probably the most speculation is, of course, on Taiwan and what Ukraine might mean for Taiwan. And, you know, you've probably all seen full spectrum of interpretations from uh, Ukraine guarantees that Xi Jinping will invade tomorrow because the Americans have shown an unwillingness to fight directly with a nuclear powered adversary. So that's you know, one end of the spectrum to the other, which is Xi Jinping is going to think 35 times about doing this and probably won't do it because of all of the things that have happened. Uh, I think, and, and without wanting to sound too, like I'm shirking the question, it, it, I think it is too early to tell exactly what this will all mean. Um, I've always been someone who thinks that this year was not going to be the year that Xi Jinping was going to do anything about Taiwan because of the National Party Congress that's happening later this year. It just doesn't make any sense. And his position is, notwithstanding the external uh, strength as he looks to be in, his position internally leading up to this Congress is not by any stretch of the, by any stretch of the imagination secure, given all of the economic challenges within uh, the PRC, COVID, the the, the I think, high-risk strategy of a COVID-0 policy, oddly enough. Uh, so I don't think that's going to happen. But one thing we've seen, I think, already has been, uh, if, you, if you're thinking about Taiwan, particularly think about Taiwan in the context of deterrence. So, you know, stability in the Taiwan Straits has existed because of the credible, credible threat of deterrence, sorry, the credible threat of force that America principally will provide were the China to, to try to change the status quo. Um, and in recent years, the sort of China balancing coalitions that America has been seeking to develop and to expand 
have broadly been moving in Washington's direction, but Ukraine has suddenly put some question marks over some of these. So if you're interested in managing a, a genuinely cross-regional China balancing coalition, Ukraine has had to put your, has asked a bunch of countries to put their cards on the table. And this makes managing that coalition that little bit harder. So think of India, think of Indonesia, think of Vietnam. So these are three countries who I think probably with Indonesia most bracketed out of those, who I think if you were going, how are we going to manage a stable security order in the face of growing Chinese power and ambition, they'll be on quote unquote our side of the ledger. What Ukraine has done is actually muddied that water and will make managing that coalition, I think, more difficult. And for precisely the reasons that Stephen was getting at, which is these countries all, I mean, all of them, need to have decent relationships with China. You know, you can't have this black and white story that says you're on our team or you're not, uh, which is certainly, the, oddly enough, the way the Australian government is running its foreign policy, despite the fact we need to be in a more nuanced position. Um, so I think that's probably the most immediate thing where you see Ukraine coming through. And of course, the other question will be how long this lasts. Do we get a quagmire in, you know, do, do, does Putin, which is what I think we're going to get, does he just dig in on a destroy Ukraine policy, which is essentially not withdrawal, not victory, but just make Ukraine bleed and all of the, and, and push the economic consequences of what's happening at the global level out over not just six weeks, but six and nine, 12 months. Um, and what that will all mean in terms of inflation, energy prices, grain prices. Um, because if that, you know, if we're looking down the barrel of six months or nine months of this, you will begin to see that anti-Russia coalition begin to fragment, I think. Um, and what that will then in turn mean for the region is, is an interesting question. So that's a quick, quick and dirty. <laughs> That's super interesting. I was going to ask you about um, the zero-sum approach and whether you think Australia might be trending more towards a zero-sum approach, but you did kind of cover that a little bit in your response. Uh, and I think we should get back to Taiwan and the South and East China Seas a little bit later. But for now, I wanted to ask you, Nick, about the bilateral relationship um, and what uh, you see as being the key developments uh, in the security relationship, we've had the reciprocal access agreement receive a fair bit of attention, uh, and it does seem to be a significant sign, particularly Japan's willingness to engage in that. Um, but what does it mean for the bilateral relationship in real terms, and what else can be done? It, I, it's a big deal. I mean, I'm someone who thinks it's much more important to Australia's immediate security interests than AUKUS's. AUKUS is a press release and maybe some submarines at some point when my children are looking at their children and I'm thinking about being a grandfather. Um, whereas what the reciprocal access agreement means is practical action. That's to say if, if you know, Japan is a country that doesn't have um, strategic depth, if it wants to get some strategic depth, if it wants to undertake training, do a whole range of things that are not particularly controversial in almost any other country, which are controversial in Japan, which is to say working with other countries' militaries to work on warfighting games because that's what you're going to need to be doing. We can do all of these things and, and, and getting on to, you know, talking about uh, forward deployment of troops um, and all, all of this sort of thing. And one thing that struck me when uh, the Consul General was speaking was um, for someone of, of my now um, senior generation, uh, when I was a kid, Talking about Australia-Japan relations still had the shadow of the war. Uh, and what we're talking about now is Japanese troops in Australia, but for all the right reasons and not the ones that, you know, that my, my father's godfather would, would, you know, never forgave him for working in Japan because he had fought the Imperial Japanese um, forces in, in Papua New Guinea. So that's all gone. And so I think what we're looking at with this reciprocal access agreement is, you know, not, not just a logical next step, but a, a meaningful next step in, in significant, wide-ranging um, interaction in military terms that will be meaningful for both our countries. And I think more broadly, one of the things Australia that's been, I think, at the heart of what Australia's been trying to achieve with its security relationship with Japan, but which has been, I think, not particularly well noticed, is... Japan's foreign policy and defence policy is controversial in the region, most obviously with South Korea and China, but across the board for, for reasons with which we're all familiar. 
Um, and Australia, what Australia wants to do is to work with Japan to help show the rest of the region that a Japan that is sort of pulling its weight, so to speak, militarily, is not something to be afraid of. In fact, it's something to be welcomed because of the framework in which, within which it is operating, which is to say liberal, democratic, status quo, defence of human rights, defence of international law. Uh, and that is hugely important, both for practical terms, but also for, for political reasons. And I think that's, and, and the steps that are going to be taken through the RAA um, uh, in, in the coming years, I think, and they'll be taken soon, and it will be of really um, great import. And that's why I think it's so much more important than AUKUS, even though it's so much less glamorous. We may get back to AUKUS uh, <laughs> a little bit later too, because I wouldn't mind um, asking Stephen about attitudes in Japan towards AUKUS, but uh, we will have a slight shift away from security. Uh, Kaori Sensei, thank you for joining us. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in Australia at the moment about uh, the importance of studying Asian languages and culture for Australia's capacity to engage with and to understand our region. So I'm wondering, how is Australia's understanding of Japan and Japanese language tracking? Do we need to do more in this country to support Asian languages, including, of course, learning Japanese? Thanks, Vic, and thank you, everyone, for coming to this session. Um, well, uh, Australia is uh, quite a monolingual society simply because English is the global language and the, the individual sense of needing to learn another foreign language is very low. But this is not just Australia, but applies to all English-speaking countries. So I'm talking about the Japanese language learning relative to learning other languages as well. And in that sense, the Japanese language has been very successful. Uh, Japanese language is the most studied languages in Australian schools and universities. Um, that, that include the primary school and secondary school and universities. They're in Victoria and ACT, uh, learning a language is mandat mandatory from prep to year 10, uh, although due to the lack of penalty, uh, there are schools that doesn't teach language at all, but even so, the Japanese really ranks at the top. Uh, the Chinese has become very popular, and in terms of the national number of learners, at the year 11 and 12 level, Chinese comes to the top. This is a 22% of those people who are learning languages in year 11, 12, takes Chinese, 20% Japanese, 18% French. But you can see that out of the, but then I have to say that only 10% of students in year 11 and 12 are actually learning a language. And out of that, 20% are taking Japanese. So Japanese, Chinese, French, this is 60% of the people who are taking a language in year 11 and 12. So I think uh, the Japanese language in that sense, in relative to other languages, has been quite successful. And I will uh, say that uh, there are many reasons for this, one of which was that the Canberra uh, federal government uh, insight uh, to see this was valuable in that they spent so much money in developing uh, teaching resources in 1970s to uh, teach Japanese language. So some of the materials that I developed in Canberra uh, have been exported to North America because Australia was one of the first English speaking countries which started teaching Japanese uh, at the quite a big scale at the primary, at the secondary school level. Uh, there's uh, also the element of pop culture, uh, the, the anime, manga, and so on. There's also a sports element, as Consul General mentioned that um, uh, Rugby World Cup, as you recall, a couple of years ago, I was actually in Japan at the time, in the Japanese national team, there are a couple of Australian players. Uh, in the newly created Rugby Union Japan League, which start this year, but prior to that, they called it Top League, all these big companies had rugby team. There are many Australians there who go there, uh, they can be, uh, they're a player 
the, the players from the Warabies or NRL players. In uh, A-League in Australia, this is a soccer league, by the way, uh, there are about 14 Japanese players in A-League in the last 10 years. Uh, male, and for the female A-League, there are about seven Japanese female players in the last 10 years. And so well, what I'm trying to say here is that it's not just a discussion about international relationship security, that amongst Australians, average Australians like me and my son who plays sport, uh, the, the Japanese players' presence is there. And some of the students who study Japanese and Japanese studies at university actually went to Japan for the first time because they were playing soccer, uh, under 19 team or whatever it is, or exchange uh, or school trip to play soccer or baseball or whatever. So I think there's this, this uh, exchange, people to people exchange element is there as well. So it's been successful, I would say, but in relative to other languages, uh, but I think that one of the problem is that the, the connection between primary school, secondary school is not very effective. And you probably have experience as a parent or student. You learn one language at primary school and go to secondary school and the language that you learned at primary school wasn't there. And that creates difficulties in continuing on. Uh, for this reason, there is, a, I guess, greater demand for the teachers as well as the resources. Thank you, Kaori. And I'm going to ask the same question in reverse. Is there a strong interest in Japan about Australia, uh, in your view? And why do the people-to-people -people links, the education cultural links matter when we're considering the broader bilateral relationship between Australia and Japan? Certainly in Japan, there is, an, a, in, there is a great interest in Australia. Uh, Australia, maybe Stephen could add to this since he, he's been living many years, 20 years? 20 years in Japan. Um, there's a perception of Australia being uh, relaxed, uh, liberal democracy, uh, emphasis on sports, and Japanese people are very much interested in sports, soccer, baseball in particular, not in cricket, but uh, the rugby union has become very um, more popular and noticeable in the public discussion after the World Cup 2019. So there is a, a and then among the uh, exchange students from Japanese universities, people who are interested in lifestyle exchange uh, uh, program experience, Australia is very popular destination. Um, so I think Australians could be quite relaxed about it. And I think this people-to-people uh, -people interaction and understanding, something that you learn through the direct interaction with ordinary Japanese people is quite important. Uh, well, I think there are a few people who object to have Japanese military bases, Japanese military presence in Australian soil now because of this kind of people-to-people uh, -people interaction and understanding compared with 1960s. Um, as I recall, when I was in Sydney studying in 1980s, we were advised that maybe we shouldn't go to the Anzac Day Parade. This was in early 80s. So I don't think such advice exists now. Um, so there's certainly uh, this uh, learning and understanding through the experiential learnings process is very important. Look, we will have time for Q&A. Uh, for those online, you can feel free to put your question in the Q&A box. But before we get to that, I just have uh, a sort of final question for each of our uh, panellists, and you can take uh, what part of the question you want to address. Uh, I, did, I did want to ask about AUKUS uh, because it, it was um, mentioned earlier uh, and, and wanting to hear, Stephen, particularly your views about how uh, AUKUS has been, um, what the response to AUKUS has been in Japan and maybe also picking up on Kauri's um, point about how Australia is perceived in Japan. Uh, but I also wanted uh, to to, to pick up on some of the uh, conversation about some of the key flashpoints, Taiwan, South uh, China Sea and East China Sea, and ask um, Stephen and Nick 
what should Australia and Japan be doing about these particular challenges? I mean, Australia, for example, is not a claimant in the South China Sea, um, nor is Japan maritime or territorial. Japan has stakes in the East China Sea. Do they have the same sorts of interests and can they work together in dealing with these issues? Uh, and, Kaori, um, do we have a national language policy in this country, a strategic language policy? And if we were to have one, what would you like to see in it? Uh, so I'll solve uh, all the world's problems in two minutes. Um, so the first question I think is really interesting. How, is, how does Japanese inter uh, view Australia. And, you know, if you go up to Niseko and Hokkaido or Hakuba, these are Australian towns. Australians have made businesses and they are hiring Japanese. Um, and I think the communities have grown really close and learned about each other. So you see Australian entrepreneurship in some of these communities, which I think is something that uh, is relatively new. It's happened over the past 10 to 15 years. And it's brought a whole different perspective about how Australia and Japan are complementary in many ways. So I, I think that's just uh, the relationship is, is deepened at the grassroots level, which is interesting. And amongst the security community, which I inhabit, um, there's a view that Australia is a reliable partner and it's deepening its partnership with Japan. And uh, this is something I think is welcomed. Um, pivoting to AUKUS. Now, AUKUS is, uh, and I agree with Nick's assessment, uh, probably my kids and the next generation of kids may not see this nuclear power submarines. But where I think the real meat and potatoes of the AUKUS agreement is in four areas, um, AI cooperation, development of AI, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, quantum computing, uh, hypersonic missiles. Now, the hypersonic missiles aside, those three other areas are really critical to um, the future, uh, the Indo-Pacific's future uh, economy, uh, how it's governed, how we think about privacy, what are the new technologies that are going to be leading the region. And in the same way that the United States was the leader in terms of developing the internet and all the internet protocols that we enjoy today, uh, I think the uh, winner of the AI and quantum computing and cybersecurity cooperation will very much shape the Indo-Pacific region's governing, governing structures, uh, how we think about privacy, how we manage and regulate the digital economy. And I think this has really important implications in terms of how integrated or not the region will be in the future. So in this sense, uh, when Japan is looking at AUKUS, I don't think they're looking at it in terms of nuclear submarines. I think they're looking at how they can plug in to those areas in terms of cooperation. How can they cooperate in the AI development, in quantum computing development, cybersecurity, and perhaps uh, hypersonic missiles? And what's interesting, this is not just a, a conversation in, in Tokyo. It's a con conversation in Ottawa. It's a conversation in Berlin. It's a conversation in Paris, um, because they all understand that these core areas will be, I think, the guardrails that shape the competition and shape uh, the Indo-Pacific region's development moving forward. Um, before I turn back to the hotspots, maybe I'll get Nick to jump in on this point as well, because he probably has lots to share. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely, Stephen, that, that the high ground, if you like, for, for geostrategic competition is, is in the boring area of standards as much as it is in the area of you know, munitions and nuclear-powered submarines. In fact, it's probably more so. Um, and then I guess my, the only thing I'd add is that, that's why AUKUS is such a puzzle because, yes, it's about submarines. Fine, okay, that's a limited... Nuclear power is limited tech and that sort of stuff. But the real substantive stuff is, in, is, the, is multinational cooperation in these much broader areas and just confining yourself to the, the three, you know, colonial powers to some degree, it's... It, it, it's not just bad optics, it's, it's not great from a technical point of view. It, it doesn't, you know, not including South Korea, Japan, you know, and a whole range of others just seem to be, seem to me to be missing, missing a trick and sending a bad set of signals on that. But I think, I think it's entirely right. And it's, and to which you could also add, not just the, the sort of um, super high tech stuff, but it's also like digital payments. It's about infrastructure standards. Um, you know, what are the gauge the pipeline is going to look like? How are terminals going to work? All of those sort of things, which is that push and pull as to where standards will lie and, and whose standards become the norm. That's where that's where the big 
big battle's going to be had. And it's where you don't need to be a great power as such to win. You know, that's to say, you, you know, the, the contribution that countries like Australia and Japan can make can be pivotal in a way they'll never be in terms of, say, the great strategic balance in, in the region where whatever we do will always be at the margins. So back to the hotspots. Uh, flashbots, uh, flash, flashbots, right? Uh, do you want to start with the flashbots, Nick? I think the flashbots uh, at this stage uh, are becoming increasingly unknown. I think six weeks ago, we may not have thought of Ukraine as a flashbot. And today we're thinking about Ukraine, we're thinking about uh, uh, food supply chains, we're thinking about potential food security issues in countries that range from Egypt to China to um, uh, uh, Tanzania. And I think that this is something that we didn't really think about six weeks ago. Um, so we may not want to look at the flashpoints just in the Indo-Pacific region, but I think we have to think about what are the cascade effects of geopolitical tensions in other regions. And Nick mentioned this in his opening remarks about Russia. How long will this conflict um, continue? What will it do in terms of uh, Putin's calculation of how to manage Ukraine? Does he leave the Ukraine in a mess? Uh, is there a lingering insurgency? Does this distract the United States? Uh, a second area that I think is really important to think about is uh, Taiwan. Uh, we have an increasingly more uh, vocal support for Taiwan and not acknowledging Taiwan's independence, but having high-level visits, which really, I think, push the red line of China. Uh, and it may be increasingly difficult for Xi Jinping to stand back and say that this is just decoration uh, and that domestic forces may push Xi Jinping in, in the direction that he probably doesn't want to go into. So Taiwan is an important area. Uh, I do think that we need to worry about the Tibetan plateau uh, between India and, and China. What happens there has potential consequences in terms of resource sharing, uh, what happens to uh, water security issues, food security issues, if one or other country controls these areas. North Korea is a flashbot. But um, one area that's not in the region, uh, similar to Ukraine, is what happens in Washington at the 2020 and 2024 um, elections. Will uh, the Biden administration be strengthened? Will it be weakened? And what is the implications for its ability to uh, really have a sustainable, impactful um, Indo-Pacific policy that includes an economic framework? And this is such an important part that I think we are not focusing on enough. Unfortunately, what happens in Washington will matter to this region. I couldn't, couldn't agree more and, and has done for decades. I think that's the thing we've probably forgotten. Um, if I can be just to continue Stephen's train of thought to a depressing conclusion, um, I think you, you can guarantee that there will not be a liberal approach to economic policy in Asia from the United States, regardless of what happens. So there's Biden's as moderate a Democrat as you're going to get. Uh, he is too moderate for many in his own party and he's not pushing a liberal trade agenda and forget it on the Republicans. Um, and then more broadly, you know, if you want to get very depressed, um, you know, the balance of probabilities is that the Republicans are probably will win the Congress, sorry, will win the House of Reps. They're likely to probably do okay in the Senate and are probably better than even money favourites to win the next presidential election with Trump at the helm. And if it is, even if it isn't Trump, it'll be a Trump-esque figure. So what does that mean if you're in an alliance with the United States in a China balancing coalition when that party is, shall we say, not particularly democratic in its in small d democratic in its in its inclinations? And that's that is of you know, I think truly historical um, significance where that's going. Um, I just want to add one little thing and I'll pass to, to Kari to hear about language strategy, because I'm <laughs> I'm intrigued as to what that might look like. Um, and just to say something on the South China Sea, because it is an interesting puzzle and what, what it is that Australia and Japan share in this. And I think what we share uh, is, without wanting to sound too prosaic, is we share an interest in how this problem is resolved. And what I mean by that is, depending on how this thing finishes, we'll, I think, not determine, but be very, will tell us a great deal about how disputes are going to be solved in the future in our region. So that's to say, is it going to be solved through military means? Is it going to be solved through diplomatic means? So if you think of it as a fight, think of it as a fight about how fights are fought. So that's not going to be too better. Um, and I think 
that's the stuff where Japan and Australia diplomatically and politically should be working very hard to, to ensure that big, complex disputes like this in really important, strategically important parts of the world are resolved through diplomacy and politics and not through might is right. Uh, and I think sometimes we've, in the Australian context, because we've got a government that likes to portray things in very black and white terms and likes to put, put its military chest forward first, I think we, we don't focus enough on. Now, whether, whether that's just for public consumption or whether there's more going on behind the scenes is a little hard to tell, but I think we need to be doing a little bit more on that front and in the, with a partner like Japan, but not only Japan, but with a range of other countries who all share an interest in, in having how fights are fought worked out, having, having those rules worked out in ways that are peaceful and not, not um, leading us into more conflict. Well, thank you. Um, was that about um, national policy, wasn't it? Uh, national, uh, strategic national language policy. policy. Uh, well, we, the Canberra does have um, strategy, has identified a strategic Asian languages. Uh, that's Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Indonesian, I think Hindi, that was. Arabic. Arabic as well. Thank you. Um, but I think, you know, the policy is, in a way, can remain as a rhetoric. I mean, it, it, it's all very well to say that these languages are important and therefore the kids should be learning this. But without the kind of infrastructure and the resources, it is quite hard. And as parents and the students, you're probably aware that your school may not have offered the language that you wanted to learn. And therefore you learn something else, unless parents are committed to sending children to a school like Victorian School of Languages, which offers classes on Saturdays or on the, in the afternoon school, after, after school. But parents are not all that committed to that extent, I don't think. So, so that's why the, some of the academics argue that this monolingual mindset that we operate in Australia, that the monolingual is the no, that's okay. So that needs to be challenged. Uh, so that's one thing. And this, but secondly, I think an optimistic note on my part is that the, there are language learning opportunities. Uh, you can start learning a language even at university. We have a very sound, healthy enrollment in the beginner Japanese at university. Um, so there are always opportunities for that. But I would think that having a policy is good, but it has to be supported by the State Department of Education and then also matched by resources. And I think the uh, uh, government foundations such as Japan Foundation or Korea Foundation have some roles to play in that regard as well. I can add just a little quick footnote. I remember when the Labor government issued its uh, Australia and Asian Century White Paper and it had lots of very bold-sounding exhortations about Asian literacy and all primary school children would be presented with the opportunity to study one of four uh, four Asian languages. And I was at a, a lunch, breakfast, something rather, where Penny Wong, who was then, I think, finance minister, was talking about it. And I put my hand up and said, how much money are you going to put on the table to support this? Because if you want to put these languages in every school, you're going to need to train teachers. She said, oh, there's none. Oh, there's no money. And I was kind of like, did you just say that? I was like astonished at the extent to which it was like, here's a statement, the rest of you can just go and do it. And a complete disregard for the scale of the proposition that they were putting forward. Just to add to this, because I think, um, you know, bringing in a Canadian context, we've tried to advocate for an Asian curriculum um, in that the Canadians become a little bit more aware of what's happening in the region, its heterogeneity, the language that are needed. Um, so I think that this is a, perhaps a way to move forward. I'm not sure if Australia has an, an Asia curriculum or a course on Asia, but awareness brings uh, a certain commitment to languages. And I think this may be a way to move forward. Second is, of course, what is the role of businesses? Um, and businesses, Australian or Canadian or American or whatever country, they permeate the whole region. 
and they need linguists. They need people that understand the, some language and some culture to um, maintain strong economic relations. So I think there's a role for bringing in corporations into um, the education side, perhaps funding programs that they need to uh, specialists in. But it's not a simple uh, answer. Actually, it's a complicated answer that, again, it's education, awareness, and bringing in corporations to uh, talk about the need for those languages. Thank you very much. I see we have a couple of questions online, which I'm going to read out so that uh, our online audience know what the questions are. Uh, and then I might uh, ask uh, our uh, audience members who are in the room, whether they have any questions for our panellists. But the first one is, considering the trade shocks many countries are feeling because of sanctions against Russia, should Japan and Australia be making greater efforts to reduce trade with China in order to reduce a future shock? Uh, and the second is about the strong people-to-people -people links between Japan and Australia, which we've um, just had a, a good discussion about. Are there areas that people-to-people -people links can be improved and should governments be doing more? Uh, but I would like to open it up to the floor now. Are there any questions uh, among our uh, people in the room here? Thank you. Just really a general question about uh, Five Eyes and Japan's sort of feelings about potentially joining the Five Eye relationship and the Five Eyes feelings about Japan joining that relationship. Stephen, I'll pass it over to you. So the Five Eyes cooperation is really complicated. Uh, Japan has expressed interest in joining the Five Eyes. And under the former Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abe, they, they adopted a new national security law to try and tighten um, the security and, and concerns about um, how information is passed between the government. And I think this continues to be a challenge in, in the Japanese context is how secure is information. And I think that um, the Five Eye partners, and I'm not going to say all of them, I think one of the Five Eyes partners has been seen as more unreliable in recent years. Um, and as a result, there is not unanimity in terms of how the Five Eyes partners are thinking about Japan. And at this stage, I think Japan needs to do more to tighten its information uh, circulation, um, but also the Five Eyes partners need to probably uh, put their house in order on um, one issue, in particular China, uh, so that they can have more seamless communication and, and really make it uh, uh, a vacuum where information can flow freely, but of course remain in that vacuum. Uh, so I'll just talk about the trade question um, because it's 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 a bit of a puzzle, but it's also something that's a little tricky uh, because on the one hand, it makes perfect sense to sit there and go, why would, you know, if, if we are uneasy about China, why do we trade with China? Shouldn't, surely we should keep our distance from China. Look at Australian universities, let's just be really clear. We got caught with our, um, you know, what is it, what's the phrase? When the, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming with our clothes on. We were caught with, without any speedos on during COVID because of our, you know, dependence on overseas students, Chinese students in particular. Um, and yet there's two, two countervailing sort of propositions. One is, and that's the point, to go back to the point, Stephen's very first point, which is it's in everyone's interest to have China engaged with the global economy. It's as, it's as much our interest in terms of positive sum versions of international trade and all that sort of stuff, as well as having them tied into the global economy. The decoupling between the US and China and others, if this continues, will be a really bad thing for not just, you know, not just for cost of living and things like that, but because it will exacerbate and bring much more to the surface, the sort of zero-sum geopolitical logic of competition, because there isn't the stabilizing uh, forces or ballast, if you like, of, of mutual economic benefit that comes from interaction. Um, and the second thing is uh, trade is driven by markets uh, and you can't just wave your wand and go diversify and therefore you will find another market. The reason we sell a lot of iron ore to the Chinese is because they need it and it's a big market and no one else is going to buy it at the volume and the price. And am I going to tell Rio Tinto that it should and its shareholders should accept a, a lower return on the dollar because geopolitically we think it's a good idea for them to do that. Uh, and even if you could convince them, what are they going to do and all of the economic consequences that come from that? So that, I think diversification in itself is a mixed bag. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. 
um, over-dependence as Australian universities have been on international students and particularly from one or two countries is a problem. And, and that sort of, and that, but that's long been an issue in, in business in general. But I think diversification is a good thing, but it's you've got to recognise if you, if you like markets and the Australian economy is purportedly a capitalist economy, uh, and that's how markets and firms operate. Yeah, yeah, um, just, to, just to add to that, as I think it's really important for us to think about the broader trends, is decoupling possible? Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, and you may, Australia is relatively more autonomous in terms of agriculture, in terms of being able to feed itself enough water usually. China doesn't have uh, food security or energy security. So for China to cut itself off from the global market uh, would probably do tremendously much more harm than good over the long term. So I don't think China can cut off from the international market. Uh, and I think that for many of us, if we want to pay $5,000 for an iPhone or $5,000 again for a big screen TV or for our clothes, uh, I'm not sure that our economic systems are willing to uh, download those costs on consumers, us. So it's a mutual benefit um, with risk, and we need to uh, selectively diversify in sensitive sectors, but also try to build more rules uh, and shared understanding of how to negotiate trade in the areas that are more complementary and less security prone. I understand about diversification, and I understand that one of the uh, mineral that Japan was completely uh, very much dependent on China, 20, 2012, they started reducing the 2010, reducing, and they have reduced to a certain extent, precisely because of the reasons that you guys are discussing. So it is possible to reduce uh, the over-reliance, but it is not possible to completely uh, reduce that. Uh, about the uh, cultural, uh, about the people-to-people uh, -people interaction, I think that the relatively less degree, we see the direct interaction in uh, uh, arts, fine arts. We have a popular culture, we have a sports exchange program. Many high schools in Australia have sister schools. Many cities in Australia have sister cities and so on. And it, it is, uh, do they, they do get some funding from local government. Uh, in terms of fine arts, maybe there's something. There are Japan Australia Foundation which provides funding for the art interaction, but I think that's some area that I can see perhaps more assistance could be provided. You know, Jeff's question, hi Jeff, uh, he's at Yonsei University, I think is a really interesting question. And I, I want to illustrate uh, the, the importance of building broad comprehensive relationships between not only Australia and Japan, but many countries. And I think the former occupant of the White House created enormous stress on Japan and, and South Korea and Australia. And one of the reasons or how I think Japan and South Korea and Australia were, and Canada was very successful in managing that is that we had deep and broad relations at many different levels of government in school communities, sister cities, universities. And what we saw um, during that, the former administration is that all of these communities came together and they started to organically talk to each other, um, visit each other more, invest in each other more, um, start to strengthen their dialogue. And this really insulated the, these deep relationships from the stress that was coming up from the top. And in a way, we came out stronger because we had these strong, um, very diverse and robust relationships at many different levels. And the contrasting example I think here is the United States and China. Um, they have a one dimensional economic relationship. They're not as broad. We don't have the educational exchanges. We don't have the same number of sister cities. We're not learning uh, China, Chinese as much as we should. And as a result, they didn't have that, those cushions, the groups that could go and speak to uh, the, the the powers that be at all levels to stabilize the relationship. So in this sense, Jeff is really bringing up the importance of establishing broad relationships that include language, as Kauri mentioned, but um, student exchanges, business exchanges, university exchanges, re research exchanges at many different levels. So we have lots of um, what we call um, sidewalks to uh, 
to develop relationships and keep communication going, even when we have stress. Thank you so much. Uh, I would like to thank our panellists, Stephen, Nick and Kauri for joining us today. It was a really fascinating discussion and thank you, Consul General, for providing your welcoming remarks. Uh, and thank you uh, for those of you who have joined us in person. It's really fantastic to be in the room with you today. And to those of you who joined us online, uh, also terrific to, to be able to have the capacity to bring you these events, uh, even if you're not able to make them uh, in person. So this webinar has been recorded uh, and you will all be sent the links uh, once they are ready to be sent. Uh, our next Latrobe Asia event is actually being held, I think, in this very room tomorrow night at 6pm. Uh, and we it's also a hybrid event, so you can join us online for that. And that is actually a book launch uh, for a book called The Xinjiang Emergency, Perceptions of Uyghur Detention in China. And I'll be joined in conversation with Professor Michael Clark and Professor James Leibold. So I'm hoping uh, that you might join us for that as well. Uh, please follow us uh, on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find out more information for upcoming events. Uh, but thank you again for joining us.